to The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. In this interview with Joaquin Munez, who has an article out in the Anthroposophical Society's magazine, Being Human, we talk about his connections with indigenous education and Waldorf education. We talk about trauma and resilience and cultural diversity and the time we live in and where we need to go to become more sensitive and interested in the other. Let's jump right in with Joaquin. We're, we're lucky to be able to look at each other right now. And where are you right now? I am in my office at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Beautiful. I love Minneapolis. It's such a cool place. It's like a bike town, right? It is. Of, yes. It is. And I also got some crepes and some pho together hmm. in one little shop right by the convention center. <laughs> that's all they do is crepes and pho. So <laughs> crepes, crepes, pho, and bike. I think that's like that's the state motto, I think. That's awesome. Okay, so we, we were introduced by a mutual friend to talk about indigenous cultures and Waldorf education. And you have an article coming out um, in Being Human, which is the magazine for the Anthroposophical Society in America. Mm -hmm. um, and I have an advanced copy of that article, which is <laughs> exciting. Um, so I thought we could talk about that a little bit, but you know, I could just get to know you a little bit first. Um, maybe we could, could you tell me like, where you grew up and how you connected to anthroposophy, if you feel connected to anthroposophy and how you got into Waldorf, all, that kind of stuff. That'd be super. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am from Southern Arizona. I grew up in a small reservation just outside of Tucson city limits. And uh, that's where I spent basically my entire childhood, my adolescence and, and part of my adulthood living at that on that reservation. And while I was there, I was able to pick up many different elements of our uh, language, our culture, our practices, and our history. Um, although I'm by no means fluent in, in all of those. Um, there, there are pieces that I have and pieces that I don't have. Um, growing up in that space, I was constantly reminded of the presence of and our, and our need to be aware of the spiritual aspects of everything, everyone and everything. And part of this was emphasized during our religious ceremonies, our spiritual ceremonies. Part of this was emphasized as how we sort of just how we were in the world. I had a really hard time with it though. And it didn't come very easily to me. It didn't come very naturally to me. Um, and so I always had this tension around what I was being taught and what I was experiencing uh, in the world outside, off of the reservation and outside of our ceremonies at school and things like that. And so, um, so that's some of my formative experiences were living there. Uh, I eventually, I went to all public schools during my time in school, and then I eventually went to the University of Arizona, and I got my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD all at the University of Arizona. And I originally started out being very interested in law, and particularly in indigenous law. And then we were visited by a teacher training program, and I fell in love with education. So I eventually went into the classroom, and I became a classroom teacher for about five years and then left the classroom to pursue a master's degree and eventually pursued a doctorate. And the master's degree was really about emphasizing the significance of language and culture and the diverse experiences of students that we encounter in our classrooms. My hope and my, my driving uh, inspiration was really to develop the skills that were necessary to become the best teacher I could for Native students. I really wanted to go back into classrooms that, that I had been in as a, as a young person and teach in those classrooms. And while I was pursuing my master's degree, I became very, very interested not just in working with students, but also in working with teachers and thinking about the ways that we train teachers to be in the classroom. And so my emphasis shifted from going into the classroom and returning as a classroom teacher 
to becoming a, a teacher educator in, in whatever capacity I could. Around 2012, 2013, I started to have something of an existential crisis. And the crisis that arose revolved around this problem I was having of trying to find stories about indigenous students, native students, and their success in schools. And many of the places that I went to to explore this question told me over and over again, we don't have stories of native students being successful in school because they're not. We don't have stories of native students being successful at our school. The, the successful students go to other schools. They don't come here. And so as I heard this story over and over again, sometimes at the schools that I had attended as a kid, I started to get more and more frustrated, uh, angry, uh, disenfranchised. I was, I was feeling very, um, just completely uninspired and, 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 and tired. So I was uh, talking to my mentor, who is a, a former professor at a community college in Tucson, as well as a, um, as a, a very well-read, well, just all around very well-read, one of the smartest people I know, who mentioned that there was other forms of education that people go through besides public education. And he told me about this thing called Waldorf education. And up to that point, I had never heard of Waldorf education. I had heard of Steiner because of, a, of exposure to, by the same teacher, uh, a collection of his essays on bees. And at the time, I was a beekeeper working in, in Tucson. And so I, I was keeping bees, and I read this book, and I didn't understand it, but I thought it was really neat that there was somebody who was saying things about bees that we never talked about. So I read it and, and put it to the side and didn't think about it again until almost, almost 10 years later when he told me about this thing called Waldorf education. And so I started investigating in the small ways that I could what, what this thing was. And I was invited to Rudolf Steiner College in the summer of 2013 to participate in a teacher training program and was there for two weeks. And the two weeks that I spent at Rudolf Steiner College completely changed everything about how I approach teaching, how I approach working with teachers, how I approach working with students. And my dissertation ended up being about different aspects of Waldorf education from a student's perspective, from a teacher's perspective, and from my perspective as a, as a um, college level uh, teacher. So it, it, it was informed by looking at Waldorf education and thinking about the affordances and also thinking about its limitations. And this was, this sort of came into an interesting sort of synergy, some would say conflict, I choose to, to look at the, the congruences and the connections. This came into an interesting space of looking at indigenous education, looking at indigenous uh, Native American first peoples, practices, beliefs, ideals, and looking at the ways that these two were meshing together in really interesting, creative, and sometimes tense ways. So Waldorf education and indigenous education. Yeah. Waldorf education, indigenous education, and indigenous worldviews, philosophies, epistemologies, thinking about the way many native indigenous first peoples look at the world and how many of those perspectives had parallels in Waldorf education and in anthroposophy. So I began to look at these and I began to study both both aspects, because I found myself very directly drawn, um, not only as a, as a mental exercise, as, as a thinking, as a theory, but also as, a, as an emotional experience and as a personal experience, very, very powerfully drawn to thinking about experiencing, understanding, perceiving, and analyzing the world with an indigenous Native American worldview, and at the same time looking at Waldorf education and anthroposophy offers as a, as a way to think about the world. 
So there were certain, there's parallels. There are things that are completely not related. Um, and, and this brought up all kinds of really interesting issues about the ways we educate native students, but also what Waldorf, edu Waldorf education does and um, just seeing how all of these things fit together. So ultimately I would say that's, that's what, I, what I do. I'm a, I'm a, I consider myself to be a Waldorf inspired educator in that even in my classes today, I utilize aspects of Waldorf education as I teach my college level courses here at this university, as well as thinking about indigenous worldviews, anthroposophic worldviews, Waldorf education, and thinking about how all of these things coexist and in, in, coexist together. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, you talked about when you were younger, how it didn't, something didn't sit right with you within that spirituality and you would be having these experiences and these ceremonies and going through things and then you'd be in your public school situation and then to have this like crisis later connected to it is really mm -hmm. profound um and then to to bring these things together so amazing yeah mm. yeah well, one of my advisors told me that in the end we always end up studying ourselves <laughs> So I don't think, I, I, to me, it, it, it makes perfect sense that this is exactly what I would be doing. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and we're glad you're doing the work. So yeah, why don't we um, talk a little bit about this article too. And um, some of the, I mean, there are some larger themes in the article, which I mean are pulled out really beautifully. Um, and you've already touched on indigenous education in Waldorf. Um, initiatives in Waldorf education. Um, and then there's another piece in here that I think is so uh, important for our time. You talked about um, intergenerational trauma in this article. And um, I think, you know, having come from a reservation and having lived that life, some people equate that with trauma, and that's not always the case, but there is the intergenerational trauma there, no matter what the actual trauma in real time is, mm -hmm. if that's there or not. So maybe you could talk about that, because the other word that came was resilience, intergenerational mm -hmm. resilience. I thought that was brilliant. So maybe you can explore that a little bit, um, because that must apply to what you do in the classroom then, and what you're mm -hmm. teaching teachers to work with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And both of those terms come from a, a longer lineage of scholars who have been for, for as long as we've been theorizing what school is and how it works have been discussing these topics. Uh, so it's by no means new, um, nor is the idea of something like intergenerational trauma a brand new concept. When you talk to um, the elders of indigenous communities, they talk about something called blood memory. and when you compare side by side the way indigenous folks talk, indigenous elders talk about blood memory and how memory is carried literally in the blood, in the bones, in the marrow, it's carried in people. So even if you did not personally experience the trauma yourself, the memory of your ancestors experience still lives in you. If you compare that notion side by side with the the development of the science of epigenetics, the parallels are uncanny. Um, and so the, this idea of who people are, where they come from, what their history is, how that history has an impact on their lived experience in that moment, I think are all preoccupations that teachers need to have always functioning, whether you're a Waldorf teacher, whether you're a traditional uh, elementary school teacher, whatever, whether you're teaching at a university, whatever it is, that's a consideration that you always have to have. Because the, when I hear indigenous elders talk about blood memory, I in, sort of intuitively and instinctually understand that to be true. When I hear the scientists from Tel Aviv University talking about their latest studies on epigenetics and in the impact of traumatic experiences in laboratory settings, 
it's also true. And I hear them saying many of the same things. And so it puts a very different perspective on how we view the minute to minute experiences that we see young people engaging in or experiencing. And one of the most important things that this does for me is it always reminds me that there's so much more going on in the life of a young person, in the life of a child, in the life of a student that I, I need to be aware of and try to be responsive to um, and not assume that the place that I occupy as the teacher is this secluded vacuum sealed hermetically sealed space away from from the world outside of the boundaries of the institution or the school right i mean that ivory tower sort of thing right it was really interesting how frequently during while i was uh, doing research uh, for my dissertation it was really interesting talking to students who had been at waldorf schools i interviewed a number of my students who took some courses from me that were waldorf inspired and then anecdotally, I spoke to parents and, and uh, teachers and other folks who were in some way related or affiliated with Waldorf education. And it was really interesting to hear how frequently talk, people talked about this idea of the real world and that there is this distinction between the world that happens outside of school and then the world that school creates. And one of the things that I try to do is, is sort of permeate that membrane and say, you know, this is the real world. Like you're here in this class, you are having an experience right now. This is the real world. So, uh, and so part of that real world is recognizing that some folks have in the immediate, the very immediate daily lived experience of being traumatized for many different reasons and in many different ways. And there are folks who have never personally experienced that trauma, but carry their history with them and have experiences about that history and, and um, showing and seeing that sometimes the history, the history of the experience can have a more, uh, can have a bigger impact than an immediate experience that you, that you just had. And so paying attention to that just thinking about that and holding that and not saying that I have the, the answers to it or that I've perfected the technique for understanding this, but the fact that it's a consideration I make and, and deliberate on. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in Waldorf education, we talk about the inner work of the teacher, right? right. And right. so bringing this so strongly you know, this, I, this concept of trauma and what that means. I mean, I know, I know I was at a school where there was so much concern about field trips and field trips are a big part of Waldorf education, but there was, uh, so I raised the issue of trauma in the parent meeting about this field trip and every single person that came after me talked about familial history of trauma <clears throat> with children Mm -hmm. And so sending them away and off on a field trip was such a, it's so difficult. And so it's just living in, in so many places right now. And whether it is that intergenerational or whether it's like right there and in the moment, um, it's, I love that you're saying that, you know, it's just in the field of understanding for it's, it's the responsibility for it to be in the field of understanding for anyone that's in front of children or in a classroom or in a, and a higher ed setting too. Mm -hmm. and, and the flip side of that is with that consciousness of and consideration of intergenerational trauma, then there must be a counterpoint and the counterpoint being intergenerational resilience. Because oftentimes what happens when we think about the experiences of indigenous native folks, and this is also true of many other uh, folks of color and other marginalized groups of people, there's often a, a pitying, um, a sense of, of needing to, to save, uh, sort of a white savior complex that comes in and says, look at, you know, look at how benevolent I am that I give of myself to rescue you from the hardships that you experience because of your 
their status in this country. And sure, that's, that's true. I mean, many minoritized people have had some incredibly horrific experiences. That's not, that's not uh, up for debate. But the proof of the strength, the beauty, the power, the resiliency of folks who have experienced that trauma, the proof is that they're still here. Um, in whatever state of affairs folks are, folks are showing up, folks are here. This past weekend, Augsburg had its 11th annual powwow. And the gathering of native dancers, drummers, participants from as far away as Mexico, as far away as Canada, to come to Minnesota to engage in this celebration, this honoring, this blessing, is a testament that folks survive. Folks have an inner brilliance and an inner, and an inner genius to persevere in spite of everything that surrounds them. And so part of what I'm interested in as I continue to do this scholarship and as I continue to do this work is to think about how these things of trauma, resilience, culture, language, history, heritage, Waldorf education, anthroposophy, spiritual science, how are these things how do these things sort of live? How do they live together? Where do they have overlaps? Where do they have differences? Where, what are the congruencies? What are the incongruencies? You know, just, just examining them is, is just really, to me, very, very incredibly fascinating topics. And uh, thinking about what this can teach us about how we can educate and support the, the well-being of students. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I hear so much through this, this understanding and perception of the human being and what the human being is and can be. And, uh, you know, even that word brilliance, you know, um, I think of the word like radiance in there. And, um, you know, is definitely a part of that anthroposophical perspective on, on the human being. And so, in this time where that individualism is so important too within the development of the human being, it makes a lot of sense that this understanding is so, that, that there would be so many connections there between anthroposophy and what we are striving for in everywhere to be aware of each other and understand each other and accept and um, see each other. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, okay, so I'm going to go back to the article for a little bit. So I, I thought maybe there were some questions you posed at the end about um, Waldorf education and um, cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. And I wonder if we could touch on those a little bit, because you said this, this amazing powwow happened, and that's a tradition at the university mm -hmm. you're at? Mm -hmm. A new one, yeah. But new, you're at 11 years, right? 11, well, 11 years as practiced at the university. It's important to, to remember the, the history of the land itself and how this university currently sits on land that was traditionally the homeland of the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Anishinaabeg peoples. So while Augsburg has been in existence for 150 years, in the span of the life of this land, Augsburg is a newcomer. So traditional practices and, and ceremony and ritual and engagement has been going on here way longer than the 150 years of Augsburg. But in terms of the official Augsburg powwow, yeah, 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, good historical context for sure. So, um, and that celebration feels reverential and um, truthful and connected, right? And I, I think um, 
what some teachers struggle with, and hopefully they're struggling with this um, within the Waldorf curriculum, um, in within the the beautiful Waldorf curriculum, is um, I know I think it's in I'm not sure which grade where it's brought so strongly that there are like Native American tales and songs and sometimes mm -hmm. celebrations, and there's more and more questions about appropriation around that. So maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Absolutely. No, these are, this is a, a fundamental question. And we actually, I would say we need to take a step further back because I'm, as I've gone and, and studied Waldorf education in practice, in theory, uh, as I've uh, attempted to see and, and understand how Waldorf education works from the perspectives of Waldorf educators and from students. I've never been, I've never been completely connected to the idea that there is only one way to do Waldorf education. And certainly we could look through the, the many lectures of Steiner to find examples of Steiner saying very explicitly things like, Waldorf education must be from the place that it's in. If it's not from the place that it's in, it's not Waldorf education. And at the same time, can also find uh, in practice, in writing, in scholarship, folks talking about the Waldorf curriculum and how it must be implemented and deployed in a particular way, or you're not doing Waldorf education. Uh, I, I tend to be somewhere in the middle with most things, and certainly with this one, that I think there are powerful influences, uh, impulses that are brought out in Waldorf curriculum and pedagogy, and there's room for movement. There's room for flexibility, especially when it comes to the question of truth. So if I as a, and I believe it's a fourth, I believe it's fourth grade when the curriculum asks about indigenous uh, Native American folks. If I decide to teach a little bit about the history of indigenous people in Minnesota, for example, and I want to talk about the history of the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Anishinaabe here in Minnesota, am I telling the truth if I say that those people were in Minnesota? and now are not as much here because they are now con confined or, or often confined or find themselves on reservations or particular small enclaves. In one sense, that's truthful. In another sense, I've left out an entire, an entire history of oppression, genocide, cultural genocide, physical genocide, that has occurred in relation to indigenous peoples in this state as well as in many others. And that continues today, continues to occur. So what am I responsible for teaching? What do I bring to young people? What do I bring responsibly to young people? What do I know about how developed the minds and the capabilities of young people are that I can bring them truth and, 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 uh, and reality. The, the, the danger, and this is by no means confined only to Waldorf education, this is certainly true of all educational practices, the danger is in making a decision about what to teach and assuming that somehow that is an unbiased, uh, sort of apolitical without ramifications uh, decision that you've just made. And so when I think about the kinds of stories or the kinds of, of elements that are brought in from indigenous communities into Waldorf education, uh, I get, uh, I, I'm both heartened by and I also get concerned by how those pieces are brought in. Because sometimes I've seen the pra in practice where Relationships are built between Waldorf schools and indigenous communities where the invitation for indigenous folks to come in is a heartfelt, authentic one that is built on a relationship between 
the school or the teacher and, and the person that they are asking to come in and share wisdom. And I've also seen where it's a very um, pre-packaged sort of, these are the songs that you're supposed to sing at this time. And these are the, the, the stories that you're allowed to tell that, are, that we consider to be sanctioned, um, that are acceptable, and here's what's not acceptable. And, and sometimes those stories aren't authentic. Sometimes those stories are not accurate representations of indigenous Native American and First Peoples experiences. And so we have to ask ourselves this question about what do we believe our task is as we bring in the bring in these relationships that we that we're a part of. I mean, whether or not the Waldorf school that you currently are in whether or not that has a direct relationship to any indigenous peoples around you, you do because where you are is part of indigenous history and part of indigenous culture, part of indigenous heritage. And so by default, you've already got it. It's already there. So the question is, how do you foster it? How do you nurture it? And in what ways do you want to nurture it? Do you want to nurture an authentic relationship with the indigenous people whose land you're sitting on? Or are you less concerned about the authenticity and willing to sacrifice uh, the authenticity for what's considered uh, acceptable? Um, and this is, I think this, this is just, this is a question that all educators deal with at all times. And I think it's especially pertinent to Waldorf education because of its message of understanding holistically the child in front of them, and understanding to the greatest extent consciously truth. And sometimes truth is very painful. Sometimes truth is, is uh, dangerous. Sometimes truth is horrific, but it's truth. And I, in my in my estimation, in order to be the most effective educator I can, I have to be willing to to bring that truth to students. Right, and and yeah, and that is a real challenge to teachers to keep that in their in their living curriculum. I mean, the, the curriculum, if you work with the native people from your area or the indigenous people that were here, there's so much more alive then, I would say, in bringing it that way. And those tales are authentic and the stories. And then, you know, there's this question of, like you said, developmentally, I'm thinking of my son who's 10. You know, if I brought him the suffering right now, would he be able to process what happened to the people that were on this land around Sacramento and towards, you know, Lake Tahoe? Um, or, and, and when's the right time to bring that? And when does he, when does he need to, you know, understand the values of those cultures and the um, connection to where he lives now? And then hear about, you know, the suffering that happened. I, I don't, you know, how do you grapple with those questions? I guess in the way you've just said, but I wonder if you have more to say about that because I know teachers will be asking that too. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, one, I think we often don't give young people and children enough credit for what they're able to process and what they're able to understand. And certainly, there is an argument to be made for the protection of childhood. The challenge with that <clears throat> is when we decide what is childhood. When is it? When does it begin? What is acceptable to bring in and what must be, what children, what must children be protected I think, if I recall correctly, it was probably around fifth or sixth grade when I first learned about the Holocaust. 
and the very careful but certainly explicit descriptions of what occurred in Nazi Germany. I don't recall during my K through 12 educational career hearing my teachers talk about the massacre at Wounded Knee, the 38 indigenous revolutionaries who were uh, hung at Fort Snelling by Abraham Lincoln, the largest public execution in history, uh, in American history. That is, that was a curricular decision that was made by teachers who decided that there was a particular type of trauma that I was allowed to learn about. And even if I were, even if I give my teachers the greatest benefit of the doubt, which I'm reluctant to do more and more, even if I give them the greatest, most generous benefit of the doubt, it is interesting that we're able to talk about the experiences of trauma of folks a continent away who are generally accepted now within the, the enclave of European sort of whiteness. But we don't have that conversation about the traumas inflicted upon people of color in this country as perpetrated by white European descent folks. That's just interesting to me. Whether yeah. it says anything about what my teachers believed or anything like that, I think it's interesting that, there, that we make a decision that certain traumas can be talked about. We assume that children can process and handle those kinds of traumas, but not other kinds of traumas. And mm -hmm. what it does to further and protect a, a particular picture of, our, of the United States and, and, and what kind of a country we, we, we profess it to be. And so this is a, and I don't have any, uh, 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 I don't have a nice hard and fast rule that says at fifth grade, you can absolutely talk about wounded knee in sixth grade, you should be talking like I can't, that's not for me to decide for your students and for the context that you find yourself in. Uh, but I do think if our mission is truth, we are leaving vital parts of that truth out in the name of protecting childhood or protecting children. But we make interesting sort of allowances in other spaces. And I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's something to be looking at all the time. I know um, I heard about a teacher that, and, and I want to segue into the kinds of conversations we can have with each other within <laughs> schools or just among friends that was teaching, I think it was, I think it was seventh grade, maybe talking about the Crusades uh -huh. and talked about Christianity and, you know, all these deaths in the name of Christianity right. um, and was pretty graphic, I think, in how she brought it. Um, the teacher's not at that school anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, but she was giving a side to the story that is important for people to understand in their, um, their perspective of the world and what different religions are and how, how things evolved over time. And, um, so, so how, how do these conversations happen um, where, you know, I want to say to my fourth grade teacher, you know, I really want to make sure that there's an authentic um, understanding of the people that lived on this land and that still do live on this land. And maybe the teacher's striving for the same thing or maybe not, maybe like, wow, you know, I'm tired, <laughs> which happens a lot, right? Um, or with the school about these perspectives and, and maybe saying, well, it feels like, yeah, these kids are young and they need truth and beauty and goodness um, or beauty, goodness, beauty and truth. Mm -hmm. um, but 
they live in a world where um, their awareness is already heightened in a different way than I think probably mine was. And, you know, so mm -hmm. what do we, I don't know, mm -hmm. a little insight on that. And I mean, I think anthroposophy helps with that insight in terms of conversations and listening and, and really engaging with others. But I think there's something to be said for remembering that we're, that we are continuing to develop in the sense that while engaging in this sort of, we can, we can talk about the experience of Waldorf education and, and parents who, who gravitate toward Waldorf education and, and how it's sort of counterculture in a sense, in its own, in its own right, it is counterculture too what we are taught and are expected to learn uh, in, in traditional K through 12 experiences. In its own way, Waldorf education is a form, is, is, is part of the project of decolonization, uh, which is a, a, another sort of theoretical and, and, and pedagogical trajectory that I think about quite a bit. This idea that the culture that we grow up in can colonize our minds in ways that make us believe certain things are simply the way it is. This is what it is. This is how this thing works. And that's all there is to it. Which, so is, which is counter to the philosophy of freedom and freedom in thinking. And, right. And, right. So if we go back to anthroposophy, it's right there. That's, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in its own way, Waldorf education, Waldorf education and anthroposophy contribute to this project of decolonization. And at the same time, it's also part and parcel of the project of colonization, where it is incumbent upon me as I practice my own decolonization to find out where are my biases, where are my prejudices, where are my stereotypes, how do I exercise these things both consciously and unconsciously, how do I respond to it when it's brought to my attention that I may be acting in a colonizing manner, and what do I do to counteract it. The question of whether or not it is appropriate to discuss the massacre at um, Wounded Knee, for example, to the point about the teacher who may have been too graphic in their descriptions, right? So we can have a conversation about how much I would bring in, what's appropriate, how, how graphic should my descriptions be of what happened? Am I having this conversation because I'm genuinely concerned about violence? Or am I having this conversation because I'm concerned about a particular portrayal of a particular type of violence? And what does that say about my my colonization and my process of decolonization. So am I comfortable with explanations of violence against uh, uh, folks outside of my immediate context because I'm so far removed from it that, that I feel safe from that. But as we start to have conversations about violence and trauma that have been inflicted on black and brown bodies, here in this country, suddenly I start to get very nervous and I start to get very anxious and very, very edgy because it's getting a little too close to me. Right? If we want to talk about whether what's age appropriate, that's one thing. But to talk about what I consider to be age appropriate because of proximity to me and my potential implication in that, that's a different question. And yeah. the the only solution I can think of to that is constant conversation, constant reflection, uh, self-critique, humility, a, a willingness to be humble, and a willingness to, to even 
ask the question and accept the asking of the question in the first place. Um, to not immediately go to a defensive place if I ask you, is it possible that you're excluding this particular story because of your concern about talking about a traumatic experience of black and brown bodies in your state, in your city, right here, right now? Um, and being okay with saying, well, I'm willing to explore that. I'm absolutely willing to consider the possibility that maybe I have an unconscious bias about that. And I wanna to talk to you about that. And I wanna to talk to you as a parent who's concerned about what their student is experiencing and whether or not that's um, what, that, what that might be doing and what tactics I need to take to change my approach or the content or what I'm doing. I mean, those are all conversations that constantly, constantly need to be happening um, that sometimes don't get a chance to, to be had. It sounds like it's this, it's an openness to hearing what others are bringing and that humility, I think, is a great word to, to use there because you have to be willing to say, oh, yeah, blind spot. Mm -hmm. Didn't see that. Or just to listen to, you know, somebody saying, hey, like, we live in this area. We want, can we have Day of the Dead as part of our celebration of what's mm -hmm. happening around this time of year? take the conversation another step. Let's really explore it. Let's do a study on it. Let's go, let's take it as far as we can take it um, mm -hmm. without shutting it down immediately. So just thinking right. of some examples of things. That yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I, I guess what's, what's most exciting to you right now in your work? What, what's like just, and, and maybe in your experience with anthroposophy, like, you know, on, on practical levels, like what's, what's feeling really good? What are you excited to dive into? Um, I love that question. I'm currently, I'm really interested in thinking about Waldorf education. So my, part of my research and scholarship training is in education and in anthropology. And I am extremely, extremely interested in understanding the experience of Waldorf education by students who have experienced it and what their understanding, what meaning they make from what that experience is like. So back in 2013, after I did my training in the public school institute at Rudolf Steiner College, I came back to Tucson and I connected with an eighth grade teacher at a Waldorf school in Arizona. And once a week, I'm sorry, two to three times a week for about a year, I spent time with that teacher's class. And I was in the classroom doing observations, occasionally participating in, in activities with the class, but essentially uh, more like an observer, less participant, more observer. And I was, I was doing this in the hopes of understanding when I interviewed students who had graduated from the school or who had left the school for whatever reason they had, I wanted to have a better context for the answers they were giving me to questions I was asking, some of which I didn't really understand until I started to see the curriculum unfold. And then I began to understand, oh, that's what they mean when they say something about an opening verse, or that's what they mean when they're talking about the teacher's use of the recorder, or that's what they mean. You know, like some of the things that they sort of took for granted that I didn't know because I had never been in a Waldorf school started to make sense. So I spent an entire year with this eighth grade class and I was incredibly honored and humbled when they asked me to come on their eighth grade trip with them, which was a week long camping trip um, out of state. They acknowledged me during uh, some fundraisers that they had done and they acknowledged me at their graduation ceremony. So it was, I, I, I developed a really strong affinity for this group of students. They graduated from high school last year and all of them went to public high schools or private high schools, not Waldorf-inspired. Uh, a couple moved out of state. One went directly into the military. There, there are all these different sort of stories and trajectories. And so I've been uh, informally following these students uh, since they went to their new um, institutions. And we email back and forth. I'll occasionally message them or give them a call and, and check and see what they're up to. And 
I got a chance to interview them individually as well as in focus groups where I got them all together in one room and uh, videotaped their conversations with each other about what they had experienced four years ago before they left the Waldorf School. And one of my plans, a line of research that I'm continuing is checking in with them about once a year to have them reflect on what their experience was back in their Waldorf education and how it's unfolding for them now. So it gives me an excuse to connect with a group of kids who I really, really, really like and respect. And it gives me some insight into what this project of Waldorf education does or can do. So that's one project that I'm really, I'm constantly excited about because it's constantly sort of reliving itself all the time. Another piece of work that I'm working on right now with Neil Boland, a Waldorf education scholar in uh, New Zealand. Uh, he and I are working together on looking at aspects of Waldorf education, Steiner education, social justice, um, anti-racism, aspects of how Waldorf education exists as part of the project of decolonization and these new, these new movements that we're seeing all over the country and across the world. Uh, what is, how is Waldorf education being responsive to these new impulses like Black Lives Matter, like the Me Too movement, like movements for climate change? Uh, what, how, are these two, how are these ideas sort of coming together and what are they doing and looking at how they're manifesting in, in interesting and complex ways? And as in relation to the article that's coming out, I'm also continuing scholarship on looking at indigenous communities that are picking up Waldorf education in very powerful and interesting ways and seeing what's what's happening there, what's what's going on. So those things, when I think about those things, those are the, those are the, the Waldorf Steiner related uh, pieces of work that I'm doing that I'm really excited and interested in right now. That's great. Thank you for sharing all those. We're going to have to follow. Um, your research as it goes, and I'm really interested in hearing about that work you do with Neil Boland, you said? Yeah. yeah. Um, with all these social justice pieces that are coming um, so strongly right now in the world. It's so great. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I, I think so many of us are like, look at these Waldorf educated students, and we think because of that freedom in their thinking, we hope they will be able to contribute to these movements. And Yeah in yeah. a strong way too yeah well it's been amazing talking with you and hearing about your work and i hope we can continue a conversation you know in the future a little bit more about absolutely absolutely it's been okay. an honor and a joy and i'm happy to do it all right thank you bye thanks for joining us today on the anthroposopher stay tuned for our next episode